don't realize how challenging it really is. And I think we're beginning to discover that. So, Father, we thank you this morning that you're such an amazing Father and you're such a good God, such a loving person. And though you don't lower the standards, Lord, you're about transforming us so that we can live at another level that will bring such hope and such joy and such excitement in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that you are doing a great work in our midst. I know that you are speaking into our lives. You're bringing about this transformation and this change of mind that we're coming in agreement with you and saying, yes, this is the way to live. This is the way to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is the way to live an abundant life. And I just pray, Father, that you will help us And help me as I share your word that we will walk away going, wow, God, you are so amazing. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at just two verses. I tried to do five last week. It didn't work, so we're going down to two. You know, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Uh, It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Boy, that's pretty flat, you know? So what what, what is Jesus really talking about here? Well, Timothy Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, points out that historically, marriage was deemed as something good and desirable. And there's been studies to continue to support the premise, but you know, recently, and I think in light of uh, what I shared last week, and if you're kind of going, what did you share last week? Fortunately, there's a podcast that describes a little bit about you know, why marriages come to an end. We talked about lust. We talked about the spirit of adultery. And so I'm just kind of carrying along that theme and coming to the latter part. This sometimes is what happens when we don't address things at the front end. Then we fall out with the consequences at the back end. And so uh, a lot of young people today, it, we're living in a divorce-ridden culture. I'm not just picking on any of us. I'm just saying that's reality. And so more and more people are gun-shy, more and more people are concerned about commitment. Many people have grown up in broken and uh, dysfunctional homes. And so, you know, it's a scary thing, you know, for young people to even consider getting married. And so a lot of them don't. People are just moving in and, and living together. And if it doesn't work, we go our separate ways kind of thinking. And that's the culture that we're living in today. So there's kind of a negative attitude towards marriage. And he raises the question, so where did this pessimism come from And why is it so out of touch with reality? Isn't that interesting? Because what's real and what we perceive sometimes are two different things. And he's he's talking about how this goes back for probably a couple hundred years. And he says this paradoxically, it may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage born of a significant shift in our culture's understanding of its purpose. And legal scholar John Witt says that the earlier ideal of a marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, having children, to live in a secure environment, to be protected, is kind of slowly giving way to a whole different concept of what marriage is about. And I'm going to bring this out in the sense that this is where maybe the culture is at. And he says it's kind of a terminal sexual contract. You know, it's, it's designed for the gratification of individual parts. If it doesn't work, we're out of here kind of thing. And he goes on to say that formerly it was a, solemnly, a solemn bond 
designed to help each party subordinate individual impulses and interests in favor of the relationship. In other words, he's, he's nice way of saying it, it's about learning to die to yourself. It's about learning to be, uh, to realize. I think what happens when you're married, you start realizing how selfish you are. Anybody discover that? I've been married for over 40 years. And you start realizing, you know, it's not just about your life, it's about another person's life, and you have to start thinking differently than before you were married. You've got to factor another person in. Decisions have to be made together. Isn't that true? And if you don't do that, all of a sudden, you just don't have a healthy relationship. There's a lot of conflict. You know, you start thinking, you're thinking beyond yourself. And then eventually, little ones show up, right? And then you're really dying to yourself because, you know, these little guys really need a lot of attention. And especially when, you know, you're not functioning on a lot of sleep and, you know, changing diapers and all the challenges. And, you know, you think you're through that and they're all potty trained. Then they hit teenagers years, you know, and that's a whole new thing because, you know, teens are trying to become independent of parents, and parents are usually going through, you know, their phases of life, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff chemically going on in the parents' life, and how many know when teenagers hit their, their age, there's a whole bunch of chemical stuff happening at that stage as well, and so you got two things happening at the same time, and a lot of times there's tension in the home. You know, maybe you guys have never experienced any of that, but, you know... <laughs> I'm just pointing, you know, some observations. You know, I've kind of gone through some of those experiences, so I know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Fortunately for me, uh, I had two great girls, and, you know, they didn't cause me a lot of grief. They were just amazing young women. But he goes on to say here, this was actually given by God, not merely to Christians, but to benefit the entirety of humanity. Marriage creates character by bringing male and female into a binding partnership. In particular, lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. And last week I talked about, you know, they've done all this research and I was, you know, I, I recommended reading Judith Waldestein's book and talked about the divorce culture, how it's totally negatively impacted children. And uh, I think that's really important we understand all of that stuff. We just can't go making major decisions, not understand some of the ramifications of those decisions. He goes on to explain a new view of marriage kind of emerged in the 18th and 19th century during the Enlightenment. I, I just love that. Now we're enlightened. You know, thinking ourselves to be wise, Paul says, we become what? Fools. And uh, he says, older cultures taught their members to find meaning in duty by embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. In other words, the expectations were different. How many kind of realize that? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from a different generation now, and I think of my parents and my grandparents and how they went about doing life. And, you know, they, they just, they were kind of stuck together and did things together and worked through things and hung in there, and they were kind of committed. And, you know, we can talk about the builder generation, what made them so unique and how they'd gone through a Great Depression, how they'd gone through World War II, and, you know, a lot of challenges that they were faced with. And yet they were a generation that did some amazing things because they had gone through these challenging things in their lives, and that's because they had a different value system, and that's what I'm trying to get it across to us. Our value system, what we really think deep down inside, is shaping our culture, and it's actually shaping your life, and it's shaping my life, so the question I have to ask myself is, what do I value, and where am I getting my values from, and if we really think that, you know, we're, we've been totally enlightened, I hate to burst your bubble, but you know, most of our culture today is being affected by a very small minority of people who are controlling the media today like you won't believe and all outlets of media and we're being shaped by the movies and what's being communicated to us and what's being said in school. And so eventually we're all thinking on a certain frequency, but I'm finding that oftentimes that frequency is actually in 
is conflicting with what God's word is actually saying and it's creating a lot of tensions and difficulties, even for Christians. Uh, then he, he goes on to say, instead of finding meaning through self-denial, uh, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. You know, there's the birth of psychology and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know. I'm gonna have all of my needs met. And a lot of times we enter to relationships and we're looking to the other person to meet our needs. And how many know that's totally unrealistic? There's no human being on the planet that can meet all of our needs. Anybody know that? As a matter of fact, I would say I'm one of the most needy people. You're probably gonna say I'm pretty needy as well, Pastor. And our capacity to, be, to receive love is so great and only one person can meet that level of need and that's God himself. And therefore, I have to go to God himself to have my deepest and, and my insatiable appetite met from God himself. And then when God meets my needs, I have something to share with other people around me. And so in this view, married people are, uh, were, mar- um, were married uh, not to, fu- uh, how did I write that? <laughs> uh, in this view, married persons married for themselves not to fulfill responsibilities oh, to God or society. In other words, that was what they were not doing. And that's actually what we should be doing, Right? I was kind of going, what's this? You know, this is wrong, but it's actually right. That's the way people are thinking, but it's the wrong way to think. Yet some of the greatest things, um, how many know are nourished in our times of greatest testings? How many have discovered that? What I mean by that is we probably have gained the most in life's most challenging moments when things are really difficult. You know, struggle, suffering, sorrow, they breed wisdom, understanding, patience, and growth if we'll allow them to. I mean, we'll either become better or we become bitter. Isn't that true? And if we'll let God take those things, those challenging moments in our lives, and instead of, you know, turning our face away from God, we turn it towards God and say, you know, I, I really believe you're a good God, and I believe that somehow you're going to use these things for good. Because I'm, I'm so convinced, like Paul, in the book of Romans, that all things work together for good. Even the difficult things, that God's going to somehow work these tragedies, these difficulties in my life and use them so that it will enhance, you know, me as a person. But then in, this, in, in human relationships, it literally transcends us. I really believe that. Um, so people have always struggled in their interactions. That's how we address those issues that define who we are as persons, you know. I'm actually writing right now. I'm just about, I'm, I'm actually done. I'm gonna defend what I've been writing from for over a year. Can you believe that? Thursday, you can pray for me. And one of the reasons they're gonna ask me, why did I write from the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and I wrote on communications? Why did I do that? One reason is because too many people in our culture say all we have is a communication problem. And all the studies, I mean, the real academic people really know this stuff. They know that's not true. And all the people have done the real marital work and done all the research on marriage know it's not true. You know what the real problem is? We've got a heart problem. Because what you say is really coming out of what is inside of you. It's coming out of the essence of who you are. And that's what the heart is in the Bible. It's the essence of who you are. It's your emotions. It's your will. It's your uh, mind. It's all together. There's no distinction in the Hebrew thinking. It's all together. And so that's what's happening. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is actually dealing with the heart. 
And what he's gonna show us is that the problems are not external problems. They're not uh, what's happening on the outside. It's what's happening on the inside that's the real issue. And he's always going after the heart. How many have recognized that? You know, the more I've studied the scriptures over all these years, I'm coming to this deep conclusion that, you know, it's our heart that's a problem. We have to give God our hearts so God can transform them. God can create within us a new heart. You know, once I admit, hey, I've got some problems here, God, it's not Patty, it's not Andrew, it's not Rachel, it's not my kids, it's not my wife, it's not Pastor Mark, it's not anybody, it's me. You know, once we get to that place, right? It's not our staff, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Once I recognize what's my part in this, then things can really change in our lives. And that's what we all need to get to because I think this culture is always looking for a scapegoat, always looking to blame somebody else for their problems rather than sitting down and saying, okay, God, what in my life do you want to bring about transformation inside of me? So here Jesus comes along and, uh, you know, basically they're going to, and, and we're going to look at Matthew 19 a bit today because Jesus kind of elaborates a lot more on this issue of divorce, but they're asking these questions. Jesus says, hey, listen, you know what? You've heard it said, but this is what I'm telling you. And what they're doing is focusing on the, the externals, and Jesus is going to focus in on the internals. And so their understanding of divorce is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so there was a huge discussion in Jesus' day. These are Jewish people, covenant people. You know, what in the world did Moses mean, you know, on, for this reason that a man shall set aside his wife? They wanted to understand that, and there was huge debate in that hour. So I believe that they had misunderstood God's original intention regarding marriage, as well as Moses' concession, or God's concession through Moses, to sinful human beings when marriages were now coming to an end. Was that really what God wanted? And so we're going to turn to Matthew 19, because I think Jesus is going to lay it out a little bit more distinctly here. And in Matthew chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 6. I'm going to look at two uh, insights pertaining to the issue of marriage and divorce. I didn't add the word marriage there, but it's, it's, it's I did in my notes. Is God's intention, number one, regarding the nature of marriage? So what did God have in mind? He's the one that's the initiator, the creator of marriage. And so in answering that question, what is God's purpose? And in chapter 19, verse four, it says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made the male and female, and he said, for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So how many here can honestly agree, number one, that God created marriage? Everybody agree with that? Number two, that God had something in mind, that actually the designer probably knows things a little better than we do. He had, you know, he, he, I think he knows how this should work. And he's trying to give it to us and explain it to us. And he's going to do that here. And Jesus is actually God in the flesh. So he's going to begin to explain what in the world he had in mind when he created this institution. The question posed by the Pharisees was simply, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? That's the whole issue. And you know, a lot of times as Christians, I'm going to hate to say it to us this way, but sometimes we behave like Pharisees. Because we're coming to God and we're saying, okay, you know, we, we, it's never said out loud, but deep down inside, maybe somebody's unhappy in their marriage and they're saying to themselves, okay, what's the way I can move out of this thing and still be right with God? It's never said that way, but I've been a pastor for 37 years and believe me, that's what is being communicated, but not verbally. You follow what I'm saying? That's what's actually being asked. And so I want to speak to that issue today because I think it's important. So I think we have to have a little understanding 
of the way this is being framed, the Jewish culture, and then we'll get a real understanding for our day. Okay, so first of all, it was accepted throughout Judaism that a man had the right to divorce his wife. So when, when they came to Jesus, they weren't asking, can people get a divorce? That was not the issue in their mind. As far as the Jews in Jesus' day, they thought, no problem. You can get a divorce. You follow this? They just wanted to know on what grounds you could do this and there'd be no problem with God, you know? Though a woman didn't have the same rights to divorce her husband. Isn't that interesting? Now, we'll see a little later on that Gentiles had no problem. They weren't following the law. So they, you know, in, in Roman society, women divorced their husbands. Gentiles, in that, their cultures, women had that right. Okay, so now in Mark's gospel, uh, okay, in some circumstances, let me just go back and say it this way. So how did women, you know, divorce their husbands in Jewish society? In some circumstances, she could petition the court and the court might direct her husband to divorce her. Let's, they put pressure on the husband saying, you gotta divorce your wife. Because what he had done was so ludicrous or so terrible that they said, that's it. But even then, the actual divorcing was done by the husband. So there was no, a wife didn't have the legal right to divorce her husband, but the courts could make the husband divorce his wife if she could get them to do that. You follow that? It's just the way it is. That's how they thought. In Mark's gospel, it says this, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So here Mark is explaining that a woman could divorce her husband, but that's because Mark's audience is primarily a Gentile audience. Mark wasn't written primarily to Jews. We're in Matthew's gospel written primarily to Jews. Okay, now, Isaac Abraham writes in his book, you would think that because they're talking about divorce, there was a lot of divorce in Jewish culture, but the reality there was not. So it was a far more stable culture. And this is what he said, most Jews married young and Jewish sentiment was strongly opposed to the divorce of the wife of a man's youth. Now, why would they come up with this idea? <clears throat> Because they didn't have the New Testament, they had the Old Testament, and if you read Proverbs very carefully, the wisdom literature, it, it talks very strongly against adultery. Did you guys, you know that, right, when you're reading Proverbs? And it also says, love the wife of your youth. It says that very strongly. So what, I, I think what, what it's te teaching us is it was a big deal to get married, and in those days they were arranged marriages, so it wasn't like you were just picking your spouse. Your family kind of helped you make decisions. You know, I, I have, there's this little merit to that, I think. I've been in India now, and they have some arranged marriages. And, you know, they actually meet with their kids, and they actually talk to them. And they get to choose. They actually meet these people before they marry them. So, but the reality is you still don't know what you're getting. No matter which way you do it. You know, some people here think, well, I know exactly what I'm getting. How many here you've been married for a few years, and you go, I had no idea? You know, I had no idea what I was getting into. It, it, it's the truth, you know. You're making a commitment to a stranger in some ways. You know, you think you know, and then after a while, and then what's really funny, well, maybe not so funny, is after you've been married for a long time, when Patty will go, I, hadn't, I didn't know that about you. You know, it's not that you're trying to keep secrets, but sometimes you just don't, everything just comes out, takes time for it all to be unpacked. Isn't that true? That's right. It works that way. So, Jesus' response to address the biblical understanding of marriage. Um, he points his hearers back to the very God-ordained purpose behind marriage. He says, right from the creation of humanity, it was God who instituted the marriage relationship, 
And it, it was God that designed the, uh, and designed the reason for a man to leave his primary relationship with his family of origin and be united to his wife. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. For this reason. Okay, that's a very strong thing, to leave your family of origin and then to develop a brand new family unit. That's very powerful. The man and the woman are now joined together. That word, that word that they use, joined together, is an interesting word. It's the idea of beginning an association with someone. And this word is used in the New Testament, not just for marriage. It's used also uh, to literally, like being joined to the Lord. So our joining to God is, in, is the same idea as being joined to our spouse. How many think that's a pretty powerful thought? The other one, it can be speak of being joined to the Christian community. So, you know, a lot of times, as North Americans, we don't have this concept because we're all so individualistic. But if you, know, if you come to Asia with me, people in Asia don't think like North Americans do at all. They are, they are tightly knit in kinship groups, and it's very strong. And they don't even, they see themselves as representing a group of people. They, they see themselves as having a responsibility before a group of people. They don't just make unilateral decisions. They're going, how is my decision going to affect my family? How is my decision going to affect the community and the people that I live with? How does this going to impact, this is going to really shock you, but how does this impact my ancestors in some way of thinking? You know, and like when they had a, when, like when Romans had a funeral, they would drag out all these, you know, these pictures that they, 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 they kind of create a mask of a person that died. They do a kind of a plaster of Paris look and they keep the picture and at a funeral for another relative, they would drag out all these things and they'd be carrying them along at a funeral because they wanted to, you know, you were living to honor the memory of your family. How many think that's so foreign to the way we think? And yet the Bible is written in that context. So you can already see that in our context, you know, we're just going, I'm just doing my thing. It doesn't affect anybody else. Well, that's not even in the thinking in the Bible. It's not even there because they're in a different culture and they think totally differently. So being joined together. So this idea, literally, it means to be so, it's like glued together. So you can imagine this unity is such a tight unity that when you take it apart, you know, you ever try to glue two things together and you decide, I'm going to, you know, take two pieces of paper and glue it together and see what happens, try to pull it apart. It's pretty messy, isn't it? I mean, parts of both pieces are coming, you know. And that's why I think people suffer so much when they go through a divorce because they're actually grieving the loss. It's like the same experience as if your spouse is dying, except for it's worse. They're still walking around. And I think there's the pain of rejection on top of that. So there's a lot of pain there. And so we have to understand that, you know, what's going on in the situation. So what does it mean to be one flesh? Well, that word flesh is interesting. It's used uh, 150 times in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, it has no negative connotations at all. None. It's just talking about flesh, like, you know, our, our body, our flesh. In the New Testament, Paul takes that idea and he links it to our sinful nature, okay? And so some translations talk about the sins of the flesh, but it's not talking about this flesh. It's talking about our nature, okay? Now, in this text, when he's talking about the two shall become one flesh, he's literally using the Old Testament idea. He's not, this is not a negative concept at all, that God says, I'm gonna join the two and they'll become one. They become one. And... Uh, 
there's a unity there. In marriage, the two now become related or now considered one. There's a unique unity of relationship. By speaking to the issue in that way, in the way that Jesus did, he was pointing out that the current debate in his day was losing sight of God's intention. That's what he was saying. When they said, well, on what grounds? Jesus doesn't answer that question. He goes, well, this is what God originally intended. This is what you need to understand. What Moses did, was we're going to see, was a concession, not God's purpose. Everybody follow that? Now, they're going to ask, well, then why did Moses do that? And Jesus is going to answer that question. So everybody has to understand the nature of God's intention for marriage. How many go, this is a pretty high intention? How many see that? And as human beings, in this, in not just in our culture, over time and in many cultures, how many know that so often we struggle with God's intentions? Is, can anybody honestly say here, I've always done everything right? <laughs> you know? And so, listen, I'm not saying that people who have failed in this area... And sometimes people didn't even want to fail in this area. I said that last week. Sometimes, you know, and I've had people crying in my office. My spouse left me and I don't want it to end. And how can we keep it together, pastor? And I go, it takes two to make a marriage work. If one person refuses to make it work, the other person, good luck. You know, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, you're fortunate if you have a spouse that says, you know what, I'm going to tolerate you. And the other one says, I'll tolerate you. For, you know, I mean, I'm serious. That's a blessing from Almighty God. I'm being honest. You know, it's not because you're, you're so amazing and wonderful. You may think that, but, you, you know, you just have an amazing spouse. And so, you know, all the time we're looking at ourselves. I think what you need to do is look at your spouse and, you know, say to them, you're just an amazing person to be willing to live with me all these years. You are the amazing person. And then, uh, you know, the other person should turn around and say the very same thing. Isn't that true? You know, because that's God's intention. And you grow up together. You learn from each other. And uh, there, there's going to be differences. And you're going to see things differently. But over time, you know, and I, and I would say this to us. I've discovered over time that if, if you'll honor this person and, and if you'll start praying together, that's probably the most important thing. You know, you both desire to do what God wants you to do. And if you can both do that and say, you know what, we're going to try as a couple to put God first in our life. We're going to seek God together. It's going to change your lives. I can guarantee you. Because if a person starts moving towards God and the other person's moving towards God, you're going to meet somewhere. You're going to meet there. And, you know, over time, how many can honestly say as you've matured, you recognize that when you were younger, you thought you were right. And as you got older, you realized you were wrong. I got my hand up. I don't know about anybody else. The older I get, the more, more I realize now how many times I was wrong. But when I was younger, I was totally right most of the time. And now as I'm getting older, I'm finding out I was less right all those times. And you learn over those things, and hopefully you're learning from your mistakes. That's part of the issue. But let me move on here a little bit to the second point is the concession that was made because of, I use the word indifference so we can have another eye to remember, the intention and then the indifference. The indifference is really what happens to our hearts when we get wounded by one another. What do you think happens when someone hurts us? What do you think we start doing? What's the natural thing for a person to do when someone hurts us? Well, we want to protect ourselves. Isn't that true? I want to build a little bridge. I'm a little, not a bridge, but I want to build a little wall. I mean, if you're going to do that, I'm going to make sure that that's not going to happen again. I'm just going to protect myself from the pain. And that's a very normal response to being wounded. And that's what happens in relationships. We get wounded. How many here can say, I've never been wounded? See, you're all telling me the truth. We've all been wounded. Isn't that true? 
and we get wounded. And who wounds us the most is the person that's the closest to us. And you know why that is? Because when a stranger tells me I'm an idiot, I just go, what do they know? You know? But if Patty tells me I'm an idiot, that's painful. Because <laughs> she knows me, right? I mean, she's going, what are you doing? You know, now i got to think about it, right? Do you see the difference? So when a spouse, you know, says something... Because you know this person loves you, it has a greater impact and it affects you in a more dynamic way. So what do we tend to do is we want to protect ourselves and we start building, you know, little places where we're protecting ourselves from the hurts that happen over time. And by the way, we all hurt each other. And so now the the text that the Pharisees were, were pulling from the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy. It says if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, You see, the whole argument was, what does the word displeasing mean? And, you know, of course, some rabbis would say, well, you know, if if she burnt your toast, that's displeasing. She's out of here, man. You know, you can find all kinds. I mean, they were arguing over the grounds of getting rid of their spouse, see, because he finds something indecent about her. What, What does it mean? What's indecent? You know, she burnt my toast. That's an indecent thing. It's just... You know, I know we're looking, you go, really? Listen, people will do crazy things when they're hurt. He says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. In the Pharisees' mind, divorce was never the issue. It was the grounds that was being debated. The dispute was over the term he finds something indecent about her. However, Jesus, in stating his position on marriage, did not address the issue as far as the Pharisees were concerned. They said, well, then why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. This was God's intent, that they would remain lifelong partners. Okay, divorce is a concession. Why? Because of the sinful condition of humanity. That's why. Because, you know, things happen. People make bad decisions. People wound each other. You know, people decide, I don't want to be in this marriage and run off with somebody else. That's, these are all things that happen. So what does it mean to be, you know, hard-hearted? That's a great question. It's an idiom, you know. It's an expression. And it means to be uncircumcised and hard in ears, pertaining to be obdurate and obstinate and stubborn and completely unyielding. And by the way, when you're reading the Old Testament, isn't that funny that these, God goes, you're uncircumcised in heart. In other words, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. You're not doing what I'm asking you to do. It was not true. He said that all throughout the Old Testament. And part of the problem for us is we're reading the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew language is a very concrete language. There's very little abstraction in the language, so you use a lot of metaphor and idioms to get your point across. That's what's going on here. And he's just basically saying it's because you were hard-hearted. You know, you had no sensitivity, no feeling. Actually, do you know what's ironic? And, and it comes out. You say, well, let, let me just finish this and I'll get to that thought. In other words, it would be translated, Moses gave you permission to divorce your wives because you were so obstinate. Um, in the context, it's illustrated, these are two Greek words, the focus on the stubbornness and obstinacy is the unwillingness to be taught or to understand. I'm just quoting from a Greek uh, dictionary here. In English, by the way. He's, he's writing this in English. Uh, Jesus basically is saying that the problem in relationships is within ourselves and our attitudes towards each other. How many of that's true? It's inside of us. That's what he's saying. 
We all understand it when we are hurting and we're protecting ourselves by building walls to shield the pain out, but the problem with that approach is that we become indifferent and sensitive towards each other. Do you know when I build a wall, I may be protecting myself, but I'm not getting out either. It gets lonely in there. Isn't that true? And so eventually people decide, well, I'm going to venture out. I'll try it with a new person. And what's going to happen is they're going to find it's going to happen again. Because you see, everyone's going to hurt us. Well, then, then you say it's better off not being married. Well, some of the disciples even said that. If this is the case, it's better not getting married. Well, Paul said, hey, if you can be single, if that's your you know, gift, he said, be single. Uh, there's a couple advantages to it, you know. But not everybody's going to do that because that's not their gift. It's interesting that Matthew 19 follows Matthew 18. Do you know what Matthew 18 is about? Anybody know right off the top of your head? What is Matthew 18 about? Come on, guys. You know the Bible? Dealing with offenses. Thank you, Pastor Mark. He gets an A. This guy's studying his Bible. He reads it all the time, and that just shows you. Matthew 18 deals with forgiveness. The way to have a relationship is you have to be a forgiving person. If you, want to be, you know what? The number one way to be married for a long time is be a good forgiver. And then a good forgetter. Come on. You know, I jokingly said one time when I was preaching at a wedding, I said, you know, this one guy was saying, you know, every time my wife gets upset, she gets historical. He said, no, no, you mean hysterical. No, I mean historical. She just brings up everything I've ever done. No, we don't want to be doing that. And by the way, it's not just women that do that. It's men that do the same thing. It's not a gender thing. You know, we're just good at keeping score. And what I'm going to say to you today, there's a whole bunch of you in the room right now, and you've been wounded a few times, and you've got a whole score sheet. Before you leave today, can you please burn it in your mind? The score sheet is now gone. I'm letting it go. I'm not going to hold all of this nonsense against this person. We need to start anew and afresh. We need to forgive one another, and we need to stop, you know, hurting each other. <laughs> that would be good, right? And then we can have a good relationship. By the way, you say, well, I'm not married. This doesn't even seem to apply to me. Can I just tell you, it doesn't matter what relationship you're in. You know, a lot of people can't even maintain friendships and relationships because they don't know how to forgive. Come on, let's say amen to that. Amen. Isn't that true? Do you know what? And I shared last Sunday, the person, that, one of the last two weeks, the person that hurt me, one of the deepest, not Patty, I said it wasn't her, somebody else, I, I literally forgave that person. And later on, that relationship was just as if that had never happened in our lives. Man, that's so beautiful. You can have this amazing relationship with people. And I made a decision as a pastor a long time ago. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to love people and forgive them. And that's the only way to survive being a minister because otherwise you'd quit. Because people say, they don't understand. People don't understand. I've had people join our staff. First thing that comes out of people's mouths when they join our staff, they go, I had no idea. They have no idea what it's like to be on the, on the other side of the fence. You know, try being in a leadership role. It's a whole new ball game, guys. You don't know this, but it's true. And I had somebody recently tell me they had an awakening as to my job. And they were really humble, you know. And there was a day that they weren't happy with me, but now they like me again. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, if you can just keep loving people long enough, even the people that may not like you for a season may come around again and may actually like you again. You see, if you just keep loving them. But what do we do? We get wounded and offended, and we make them our enemies. We don't talk to them anymore. We say bad things about them, and we wreck the relationships. And that includes our marriages. Okay, let's keep going down here. So how do you get over this stuff? You've got to forgive people. 
Matthew 19, 9, you know, Jesus said, except for the grounds of infidelity, but here's the thing you need to know, not, just because someone even does that terrible thing against you doesn't mean you have to necessarily divorce them. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, I think there's a difference between a one-time event and a perpetual person that's constantly doing this. I think there's a huge difference, you know? And then I think, too, trust is another issue. I always tell people, listen, you gotta forgive people, but that doesn't mean you gotta trust them. So I've forgiven a lot of people, but some people I go, I just can't trust this person because they're untrustworthy. So I'll keep forgiving them, but I don't trust them because I know they got an issue. How many see the difference? So I'm not gonna be stupid and just keep, you know, not I'm giving them things where they, I'm, I'm extending trust to them and they keep violating trust. Let people earn the trust back, but I have to forgive them. There's a difference. You know, it was, it was said one time by a young woman in the 17th century, she went to a spiritual director, his name was Francis de Sales, and, and she was caught between, you know, entering the monastery or getting married. So she was kind of in between the desire to do, she thought it would be a lot more holy to be a nun than it would be to be married. And DeSales, who was a spiritual director, he said these very interesting words. He said, uh, he said, the state of marriage is one that requires more virtue and constancy than any other, he wrote. It is per a perpetual exercise of mortification. <laughs> now, if you don't know what that means, I'll give it to you in layman's language. This is an opportunity to die to yourself. You know, when you get married, you're going to have to lay down your rights. Oh, by the way, even if you don't get married, you're going to have to lay down your rights. See, to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to lay down your rights. And, you know, we can all say, oh, I'm totally surrendered to God. I always love this. I'm totally surrendered to God. And I know just exactly how surrendered I am to God when I get to the point in my life when I want to do my will and it's in conflicting with God's will. And this is where the real tension is in all of our lives. And that's why we need to pray this prayer every day. Not my will, you know, basically, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I need to pray that every day. And you know, there's moments in my life when I'm going, I know what you want me to do, but I know what I want to do. And at that moment, that's when you and I have to die to ourselves. And we're living in a culture that's not dying to itself. And we're all doing our will. And then we can't understand why we're not happy. Because what we're doing is we're violating God's word and it's at the detriment of ourselves. So we need to lay down our lives and say, okay, God, your will be done. You know? And I've learned something over the years. Most of what we fight about is nuts. It's nonsense. Who cares? You know? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, you want to do that? Fine, let's go do it. No big thing. You know, be, be a little easier to live with. You know, the people that always have to have their way, they're difficult to live with. If you're that person today, ask God to help you. You know, just say, Lord, I don't want to be a difficult person to live with. I want to learn to flow. You know, one time we were on a vacation with my youngest daughter. She had to know everything, every detail. I said, Rachel, you're going to learn one word in this trip. What's that, Dad? Flow. Let me spell it for you. F-L-O-W. You know, we're just going to Flow. We don't have, and you know, and if you learn to, because she's a structured child, and, it, and it's great to be structured, it's great to be a planner, she's like her dad, so I know exactly what's going on here, I like things planned out, but at the end of the day, you have to have a little bit of flexibility, and you can't be fighting over everything, you can't always have your way, I mean, that's, babies are the only ones that try to do that, so if you're trying to do that, you haven't grown up yet, that's what I'm trying to tell you, you know? Babies cry and want their way. And you know, when, when people are all upset and mad and angry, you know, it's not very becoming, you know? 
You know what I'm talking about. You know, it's one thing for a three-year-old throwing a tantrum in the mall. It's another thing for a 55-year-old doing it. <laughs> it's a really not becoming. I mean, the three-year-old, it's, you know, you can kind of understand it. You're just saying, I hope these parents take this kid and discipline him and help them understand they can't always have their way because if they don't, he'll be 55 in doing this. It's the truth. <clears throat> Why did Moses basically do this? Well, Moses' day, divorce evidently did need to be regulated. And the reason being was, if you were a woman in Moses' day, you didn't really have much of a life. You were either a daughter, you were either a mother, that means you were married, or you were a prostitute. I mean, read the Bible. There was not a lot of places for women to operate in the Bible. You know, I'm serious. Not a lot of single women in the Bible. There might have been a few, but there weren't, they weren't a ton out there. And so basically, if the husband just brushed them aside and then all of a sudden, you know, took off with somebody else, this poor woman's got no life. You know, he's just throwing her out. And then later on when she wants to, you know, get married and have, have a family with somebody else, he's going, no, you're still married to me. So Moses said, no, no, you got to, if you're going to treat them like that, then you got to give them a bill of divorce and let them be free. And oh, by the way, husbands, when you do that, you can never remarry that woman. So better think twice before you do it. So that's why Moses basically wrote that out because it was a protection. So, but here's the implications that we're living in a new order. Jesus is now talking. That's the Old Testament. What's different between the New and the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, you had the law of God. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came on you to do certain tasks. In the New Testament, you have the law of God where? Written inside of you. And what do you have living in you? The Holy Spirit. And what is the end result of our faith? What's the right answer? The end result of faith is what? What's the end result of our faith? Want me to frame it differently. What's the fruit of the Spirit? The result of the Spirit inside of your heart is love, okay? So, you and I have a greater covenant with God. God says, I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to write my laws in your heart. I'm going to give you the power to do the Word of God. New Old Testament guys didn't have quite that same power at work in their lives. And we can see that. So what he's basically saying is, look, I want you to treat each other so differently. As a matter of fact, I want to, I want to develop a community where the, the distinctive mark in the community is love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have what? Love for one another. You and I need to model a faith that's working love. That's what we should be working towards. So now where does it start? I should be demonstrating that towards Patty and my children. That's where it starts. And as a matter of fact, it says in the New Testament, if you're an elder in the church, you have to have your house in order. What we used to think in the old days was you'd crack the whip and made your kids conform outwardly and they were always rebelling inwardly. That's totally wrong. Okay? No, if you're a loving person, and by the way, the, the most loving person I've ever met, his name is Jesus. And when he fills your heart with his presence, you should become a loving person. And if you're not a loving person today, you've got a lot of growing up to do. That's all I'm going to say. You, you need help. You need to say, hey, I've got a heart problem. And that's what Jesus was telling these guys. You've got a heart problem. You know, 
We need to have a change of heart. We need to become loving people. We need to love our spouses. We need to love our kids. We need to love each other in the church. And you know what I get a lot of time is people bickering and fighting with each other. I'm going, what in the world's going on here? That's not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of selfishness, right? It's getting real quiet in here. Have you noticed, you know, when you just give ideas, then you start getting into the application of the sermon. Everybody gets real quiet. It's like, are you talking to me? Like, does this apply to me? Let's stand. We could say so much about this. I could probably speak on this topic for hours, but I'm not going to. Say, thank you, pastor. It's getting uncomfortable. <laughs> but just with every head bowed right now. You know, I want to extend beyond just our marriages, though. But I think it starts with our marriage. Starts with us as a dad, a mom. Starts with us with our children. Isn't that true? Closest people. How am I treating the closest person to me? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. You don't have to even be married. Who is the closest person to you and how are you treating them? Am I treating them in a loving way? Is it just about me? There's a question you've got to ask yourselves. Just say, Lord, I, I, you know what? I recognize there's woundedness inside of me and I've been protecting myself and yes, people are hurting me. Usually the one that hurts you the most are the ones that are the closest to you. And how many here say, you know what I gotta do today? I gotta let the I gotta let the wall down. I gotta let the wall down. I gotta I gotta forgive. How many here realize right now you need to let the wall down and forgive? Just raise your hand. That's you. Yeah, a lot of hands are going up. Okay, that's good. How many here say, you know what, I realize, you know, we, we kind of joked about it, but there's a lot of immaturity inside of my life. And I need to grow up. And I see that. And if I become a better person, a more loving person, I let the Spirit of God work inside of me, become a more loving person, I will become a better husband, a better wife. I'll become a better dad. I'll become a better kid. Maybe you're a young person and you're rebellious towards your parents. You go, yeah, but you don't know my parents. They're, they're demanding and they expect this and that. You know what? Thank God that they have some rules and boundaries for you. You know what? They probably do that because they love you. And even if they're dysfunctional, my parents were dysfunctional. I asked my wife, I respected my parents, and I honored them. She couldn't believe it. She goes, I can't believe that you honor your parents with all the baggage they've got. That's why she picked me, she said. If you can honor those people, you can honor anybody. But I'm serious about this. When you show respect and honor to people, it is so powerful. But we need a change of heart. How many see that? God, help me to be like you, Jesus. You know, that's my prayer. When I grow up, I want to be just like you, Jesus. That's my prayer. And I prayed this morning. I said, Lord, I want to stand here and speak as if you were standing on the Sermon on the Mount, talking to people and explaining to them, it's not about doing everything right externally. It's about having the right heart and the right attitude. And it's a loving, forgiving heart. I don't want to get hard-hearted toward anybody. As a matter of fact, even when people treat me poorly and I, you could consider them, my, I could, they could think that they're my enemy, I want to love them because Jesus said, love your enemies. I want to be just so oozing with the love of God that people are drawn to the kingdom of God. Isn't that true? Let's just open our hearts to God. Lord, we just open our hearts this morning. We just say, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us to such overflowing that we would have a loving heart, a forgiving heart, a tender heart, that we would not be keeping score, keeping history, but that we would be doing 
what you would ask us to do, that every day we'd be surrendering to you, your will, your word. Father, I pray today that you would mend broken relationships, friendships, marriages today, relationships between parents and children, Lord. I just pray that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts, just changing us and making us more like you. I pray that these people that I'm looking at today and the ones that are hearing my voice would become like magnetic personalities because the spirit of Jesus would just flow out of them and people would be drawn, not just to them, but they would be drawn to Christ in them. They would be drawn to you, Lord Jesus, because these are your amazing ambassadors showing love to people who don't even deserve to be loved because that's what you do for us. Help us to do that for our spouse, for our children, for our family members, for our co-workers, for our neighbors. I just pray that you'll do such an amazing work. I pray that this congregation will be known as the most loving church possible because we'll exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, the end result of faith, which is love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.